Hi, and welcome. Today I'm talking with Dr. Vikram Balaga. He is an instructor of horticulture and teaching research greenhouse manager at Texas Tech University. He's also the host of the Planthropology Podcast. For this podcast, I love talking to academics, students, researchers, scholars, amateurs, podcasters, and so many more. Their passion for the topic really shines through. And you may have noticed not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. I guess now we delve into some green history, eh? Today I'm really excited. I'm hanging out with Vikram Balaga, and he is the host of a podcast you might have heard of, and if you haven't, make sure to check it out. I will post all the links after the episode. I just want to say thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on with you. And I'm so happy you're here, and I'm actually really excited about your topic. It's right up your alley, and I think that we'll really learn a lot from it. So do you mind sharing what your topic is? Uh, sure. Today we're going to talk about gardens uh, throughout time. Nice and concise there. I love it. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I don't know if I <laughs> no, need no, to. No, it's good. <laughs> so how did you get interested in this topic? So I think like most of these stories end up being for me, it's a, it's a long story sort of. Uh, my mom and I grew up living with my grandparents or, or when I was, sorry, when I was growing up, my mom and I lived with my grandparents, I should say. And my granddad was a doctor, but in addition to being a medical doctor, he did family practice. So everything from, uh, oh, well, he spent most of his career in family practice, but he had done everything from labor and delivery to surgeries to uh, two or three other things. I don't even know his whole resume. So he was a, a very like diverse and prolific doctor, but what he did in his off time was garden. That was his always his favorite thing to do. And so I have fond memories growing up of spending lots and lots of time out in the backyard uh, uh, gardening with my granddad. I think there's a, a very early picture of me at two or three years old standing and staring at some corn plants that are twice my height. So some of my, again, earliest formative memories were, were being outside and gardening and, you know, finding turtles in the yard and things like that. So just like being outside with nature, growing food, growing plants and you know, growing up, the city that we live in, Lubbock, uh, has grown a lot in the past 20, 25 years. But when I was young, our we would open the back gate and it was cotton fields about as far as you could see. And now it's in the middle of town. There, there are old homes in the middle of town. But so we spent lots of time just enjoying, I was gonna say, you know, nature, but enjoying agriculture and enjoying gardening and just uh, open space and all of that. And so that's what got me into it. Going to college, uh, I started off also wanting to go to med school. So I did a year of biomedical engineering because I was out of my mind. <laughs> you know, I had these ideas. I wanted to build prosthetics and design stuff. And I interned with a doctor after, I guess, after my first year of college. I can't remember exactly now when it was. And I realized pretty quickly I don't like blood and I didn't like calculus. So engineering and medical school was not probably going to work for me. And so, you know, at 19 years old, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And uh, a general studies advisor just 
it, it was interesting because it wasn't like, what do you want to do with your life, blah, blah, blah. It was just, what do you like? And I said, well, I like plants. I like gardening. And so my undergraduate degrees in horticulture, I have a Bachelor of Arts in horticulture. I studied landscape design for my undergrad. Uh, my master's degree was a master's of science, and I did um, tree crop production. I studied olives uh, for oil production, but it was really about water. Uh, how do we save water and be more efficient? Um, and then I just wrapped up my PhD, uh, technically in turf grass science, but uh, I really studied again water conservation, urban water conservation in the in the landscape. So I've done a little bit of everything. I think in uh, the world of gardening, I ran a landscape company for years. I've done community education for the Extension Service, and so now I think most of my interests in horticulture lie in water conservation water and resource conservation, I'll say, uh, but also in local and regional food production. Because one, it's important, something we do as a family, but also I think we've seen through all of this uh, COVID business that like some of our food supply chains are really fragile. And so the idea of decentralizing our food production system and regionalizing it so local markets are more resilient. We can actually get by a little bit better if big supply chains go down. That's, I think, where I want to spend a lot of my career working and doing research. That was a very long answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that was great. That was great. Um, so are you like the Texan Monty Don? Is that what they call you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with that. I can go with that. Uh, you know, it's it's funny. We have a man in Texas um, named Neil Sperry, who was kind of in that same generation as Monty Don, and he did very similar things in garden and landscaping. And there's, I think, in this industry, there are a lot of big shoes to fill. <laughs> and uh, but no, I will take that compliment and run with it. I'm happy with that. Oh yeah, he's. I love watching any video he's put out. He's just so fun to watch because he's so passionate, right? If anybody's never heard of Monty Don, you need to check him out. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think what's what's interesting is something I've found in the plant community, the plant science community between gardeners and scientists is we tend to be super nerdy about this stuff. Like we like we get in, we don't get into this for the money. Absolutely. Right. Like we get into it because we love nature and we love watching things grow and we love teaching people about it. And so I, I think you would be hard pressed to find a more like engaged, passionate and super nerdy community than, than us plant nerds. So are we calling out a challenge then? <laughs> I'm OK. Yeah. Yeah, start another Twitter fight. <laughs> <laughs> At least it won't be about worms this time, you know. <laughs> oh my goodness. That was my favorite. Like, this is totally an aside. It has nothing to do with anything. But my friend Ellen, who hosts the Just a Zoo of Us podcast, started this whole fiasco. And it's like my favorite thing. And I think she has like post-traumatic stress from it. <laughs> like, she's just like, anytime I bring up worms, she's like, no, stop. Just stop. Don't, don't. <laughs> Well, that is definitely a thread to check out if you haven't. Absolutely. It is It is quite the adventure. <laughs> okay. So now I guess we can jump into gardens. So, so who came up with this stuff? You know, like how did this start? So it's really interesting. And a little bit of it depends probably like a lot of things in history. It depends who you ask, right? Because we all have different perspectives on the origins of things or what we call uh, the first garden or whatever, right? It started initially, like you might think, for food, right? As people started to settle and started to build communities and villages and towns and cities around rivers, 
it became much more advantageous to bring the forest and bring nature and the food sources closer to home, right? When we were transitioning from more roaming hunter-gatherer types of civilizations to more agricultural and, and, you know, stable static civilizations. So depending on where you look, a lot of people put the first outdoor garden space that's somewhere around 10,000 BCE. And it was not probably what we think of as the garden today, right? It's not, you know, your tomatoes outside or your peppers or whatever you're growing um, or flowers. It was more, it was more a forest type of garden where people would establish and settle along a river and they would select plants that were better and get rid of plants that they didn't want. So, you know, this is a simple example, but if there was a early apple tree that they wanted fruit from, they would keep that and then they would collect the best fruit and the best seeds and plant those. And then if there was something like poison ivy or something that was harmful or toxic, they would remove that from the immediate area. And so it wasn't necessarily originally like I'm going to take seeds from this and bring them home and plant them here. It was looking at the environment around them and adjusting it to ways that were most beneficial to life at that time. So it was interesting to see, to read and just to study a little bit about this as I was prepping for this episode about how up until really, and you know, history is long, right? So when I say the past several hundred years, that sounds like a lot of time, but ultimately that's no time, right? So say the, the past few thousand years, I think the earliest um, examples that we typically see and typically talk about of what we would consider a modern garden with ornamental plants and flowers and things like that that are strictly cultivated and stuff are probably around the, the 1500s BCE in Egypt. And so early Egyptian gardens, there's paintings of flowers and things in palace courtyards and things like that. And so especially along the rivers and, and places where things are grow more easily. So long and, and variable history, but it, it has its roots in a very practical place where you want to make sure the plants that are around you are safe, that are they're, that they're useful, and that you don't have to go very far to find food and find the things that you actually want. Yeah, weird thought, but like, I wonder if the, some of the pots that they found in like Egypt, if they had plants in them. Bizarre thought, I know. No, but it's it's certainly possible. And we when we talk about, um, you know, Persian history is rich with gardens. And so when we talk about like a, a notable example that a lot of people have heard of is like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. But it was very much a containerized garden, right? They would terrace the city and they had these big, essentially containers, right, where they were planting different things and it was hanging vines. And to the best of our knowledge, it's, you know, I'm actually I'm looking at this is maybe a spoiler if you if you listen to Planthropology, but I'm looking at interviewing a paleobotanist sometime pretty soon to talk about some of these things and some of the early um, archaeological finds in terms of plants. That that's again an aside, but so we see a lot of roots in Persia, in Egypt, in and in the East. Ancient Chinese gardens were probably more like what we would consider a national park now, more than like a home garden. So there were large parts of land that were protected and kind of divvied out to be a place where royals and other people would go and explore and hunt. Um, so that was another early form of garden is like preserving pieces of land for hunting and agriculture and, and, and not agriculture, but hunting and, and adventuring and things like that. But they called them gardens or something similar to a garden, even though it was really just like, here's some forest that you can go shoot deer in or whatever, you know. But it looks really pretty. 
but it looks pretty, right? I think gardens are an interesting concept because early gardens and and the early concepts of gardens were one that were very kind of harmonious with nature, right? It wasn't so much I'm going to take nature and bring it home, but I'm going to find ways to uh, interact in a more beneficial way with nature. And that could be beneficial for the environment, but also beneficial for the people living in that environment. The modern garden is very different, even though I, I do see it changing in some ways back to some of these older thoughts. But as we, you know, move towards more modern times, a lot of people think of like the English garden, the European, the, the feudal, uh, middle, medieval European garden with like the sweeping gardens at like the Palace of Versailles that's all very green and linear and boxy and straight lines. And, and you know, they have some interesting patterns cut in, but everything is neat and trimmed and, you know, everything in its place, which is very European, <laughs> I think. You know, it's very British to have everything, you know, very well kept. But you also see this undercurrent in European gardens of the cottage garden, which was very much – so there's there's a stark contrast when you think about medieval gardens where you had these palaces where all the money was that was very well kept and very clean and clipped. And it was a status symbol of look how many people I can have maintain my gardens. Like my feudal garden is better than the next guy's feudal garden because I have all these people that that do the work for me. Or I have large herds of um, livestock or whatever that can eat the grass, whatever. In contrast to that is the European monastic garden. And the monasteries were very like cottage garden style because it was all about food. It was herbs and things that were medicinal and useful. Um, and that leaked out from the monasteries into people like the common people at, at the time had any kind of garden. It was a food and medicinal and herb garden. Um, so you see this big gulf between um, styles of the time. I feel like the second one is definitely closer to what we have today, where we tend to try to have perhaps something pretty, but it doesn't necessarily have to be precise down to the millimeter, essentially. I agree. There's somewhere in between. And, you know, I, and I, my frame of reference is very much a, a American culture in the American garden because of, you know, that's what my experience is in. But if you look at American television shows from, say, the 50s and 60s, uh, and you see this picture of mid-1900s American life, the garden is very similar in concept in some ways to that medieval European garden where it's big lawns that are well kept, not a whole lot of plants, not a whole lot of color. It's very green and linear. And the thought is it was also a status symbol, right? The people that could spend the time watering their lawns and mowing their lawns and doing all those things had more leisure time. They had the freedom to not work long hours. They had the freedom to be home in the evenings to mow and to sit out on the lawn and all that. And we see that today still, even though it has changed some, we still see that today. Now it's it's not as much a status symbol in terms of time because who has time these days, right? We work ourselves into the ground, but it's more of a status symbol of money, right? You can pay someone to come do your landscape for you. So there is this interesting undercurrent in gardens of competitiveness and uh, I don't know if I want to say classism, but it, it is in, to a certain extent. Th there are some weird things. There's some weird uh, cultural things that feed into this too. And I say that and I say that to people sometimes and they look at me like, well, you're, you're not, I mean, that's not a very positive thing to say, but 
I think it's important when we talk about history and when we talk about culture to be honest about it, to be honest about the reasons we do things and the reasons behind just some of our weird cultural nuance. Because we get into positions like we are culturally today by not being willing to discuss those things. So, you know, and it sounds silly because it's just a garden, right? It's just your front lawn. But there are there are some very like deep cultural things that go with it, in my opinion. Well, I think as somebody who studied water and how important water is to the environment, which is sort of what I got from your subject, you might have objections to people watering the lawn a ton. A little. Uh, not as much as you might. Th- so, Okay. Yes. In general, yes, I do. I think that uh, poor management is a thing that we do. Part of that's education. Part of it's hubris. You know, I think that a well-managed, even lawn-style landscape can be very water conservative. Uh, I think that we have to take the time to figure out how to make it (laughs) well-managed. But yeah, no, the people that just pour water on the on the lawn constantly and you know have a bunch of water that runs off into the street and you know we live in a place I live in Texas and Texas is very large and so up where we live we struggle with water most of our water comes from groundwater aquifer sources um, and our resources are de- uh, depleting pretty quickly they're not recharging like they should so we're very conscious in this part of the state or we should be very conscious in this part of the state about the ways in which we use water. We're very agricultural, and, you know, if our water resources go away, we kind of dry up and blow away. There's nothing here for us because it's an agricultural community. But then if you look at southeast Texas along the Gulf of Mexico, they're getting, they're underwater. They're getting hit by a hurricane right now, actually. Well, it's a little farther east, but they've had one this year. They get a couple a year. And so when I talk about water scarcity and water resources, some of my colleagues in that part of the state always say, well, that's not really a thing that we, we you know, struggle with. Um, so it, it is interesting when we talk about water conservation and water in general, that it is such a localized, which from a policy standpoint, this is a whole other thing, but is difficult. Because how do you build national or even statewide policy for something that's so diverse and so specific to one locality. And so we kind of, that's one of those things that we kind of have to manage from place to place very carefully uh, because this one size fits all thing just doesn't, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So I'm guessing then for a garden, we should really be aware of our environment and, you know, plant accordingly, if you will. I think so. My preference in terms of style of garden is uh, maybe not quite the cottage garden where you just put whatever out and see what comes up and that's what you go with. I, I don't, I think that's nice. I don't have a problem with that. But I also, I am not going to go out and, and shear my hedges twice a week. I'm, I just do not care that much. <laughs> it is like I have so little free time. I am not going to use it on <laughs> routine yard work. I love gardening. I don't necessarily love the routine yard work part of it. Um, like, you know, mowing twice a week or, uh, ed- you know, I mow when I remember if if I can't see my son's knees as he's running around in the in the landscape, okay, maybe it's time to to mow the lawn. I don't water my lawn much. I know that when it rains, it'll come back. I'm fine with that. You know, my aesthetic is very much a multi-purpose landscape. I think the landscape uh, should be what some of these early landscapes that we were discussing were. That you know, they're even if you're in a place that doesn't have like we don't have trees. We're grassland prairie. We have 
really no trees. <laughs> so we put trees in the landscape. But if you're going to plant a tree, why not plant a fruit tree? You know, if you're going to put in a plant in a garden bed, why not something that's both visually attractive, uh, but you can also get an added benefit from, um, whether that is just a place for pollinators to forage, or if it's a an edible plant that you can harvest and eat as a, as a family or sell at a farmer's market. Um, I think that my aesthetic is becoming this multi-purpose landscape where we use plants that are productive as design elements in the landscape. So part of my job, I work at Texas Tech University, and part of my job as a greenhouse and garden manager, which is what I do, I manage our teaching greenhouse and our horticultural garden on campus, is to figure out how to tailor our environment to be the best learning experience for my students. So one thing that we're working on is as we lose plants or replace plants in the garden, we put back in something that serves more than one purpose. Um, we have raised beds outside and pots where we do things that are strictly ornamental. And, and I'm fine with that, but our more permanent plant selections, like if we have a flowering pear tree, which we do, at some point that tree will decline and go out. And at that point, I'd rather put in a fruiting pear tree, you know, serves a similar purpose in the landscape, but I also get pears. I think that's a, a good thing, you know. Uh, so as we redesign and rework our garden, we're starting to move towards this multi-purpose food forest style of landscape. I think my answers have meandered quite a bit, so I'm sorry if I'm getting us off track. <laughs> not at all, not at all. It doesn't matter. I, I don't mind tangents. I think tangents are part of conversational <laughs> pieces, so it's all good. I was just thinking, you make me think about food. So do we have more information about food gardens and how they develop? We do to a certain extent. Again, I, I think the roots of that are very early in the concept of gardening. And I would think that early gardens could really probably be categorized better as farms or small farms. And again, people would use it, whatever they could, whatever was around them, as the things that they would naturally normally eat in their environment and incorporate those more into their local space. I think that's really maybe a good way to say it is it's taking nature and incorporating it into our local environment. So when we talk about food and the evolution of food and the evolution of fruits and vegetables over the past, say, couple thousand years of, of recorded history, it's interesting because we talk very much about plant breeding and we talk about like all these things and we make it sound like this really, really big thing. But what plant breeding and plant selection really is, is that we're just kind of speeding up natural selection. That's all we're doing. So we take the apple that we think looks and tastes the best, we eat that apple, and then we plant the seeds. That is about as simple as plant breeding and plant selection really is. It's selectively picking the things that we find the most pleasing. You know, and, and now technology and stuff has come into that, but early gardens would be people picking the grains that were most productive and growing those near them, picking the fruits that were most productive and growing those near them. So probably early gardens were mostly like grains and pulses and things that would be very useful for food production. We start to see more food gardens again in Europe uh, and in the Middle East as well. So early Islamic gardens and Moorish gardens were very colorful. They were some of the first, the Moors were some of the first to incorporate hardscapes. So they would use tiles and fountains and things like that in the garden to bring color in. And they would also design these courtyards that may have uh, vegetables and things in it, but would also have 
plants to encourage a cooler space to cover up some of that hardscape. During the heat of the day or, or even in the evening as the sun started to set, they would have a cool place to go, uh, enjoy the sounds of water, enjoy the garden and stuff there. But they used lots of color. And so actually a lot of the design styles we see today in modern gardens come from uh, Islamic tradition and come from the Moors. And it's very it's fascinating to me because we very regularly use things like you know, colorful pavers and paints and things in the garden. We use fountains. And all of that comes from that tradition of wanting to cool down the local space while still providing some color. As far as food goes, again, we, we see that a lot more in the monastic gardens moving forward where they would grow things that were useful in the monastery, right? Whether it be medicinal herbs, lots of leafy greens, because uh, that's what grew well <laughs> there at the time. And so through time, you start to see these uh, traditions of people moving back towards these productive gardens in times of need. So think of American Victory Gardens after World War II, where uh, people would come home and they would plant a garden because food was scarce, because uh, they had coming out of the Depression into World War II, uh, many people had gotten used to scarcity. And so they would plant these big gardens. They would take empty lots in large cities and grow food. And so the Victory Garden, I think, is one of the first examples, at least in Western culture, at least in American Western culture, that we see uh, that is more like what we're what I'm talking about of these multi-purpose gardens. And that could be uh, like a community garden. Uh, we That's a very popular thing today. A school garden, a pocket park, things that are productive and green in the middle of a city. Um, that, at least in the U.S. and probably throughout uh, North America to a certain extent, came out of the war and came out of wanting to be more efficient with our space and actually be able to produce food when it may not have been very available. So this might be a little weird, but if you're planting a garden in a city, do you worry about pollution with your vegetables or with your herbs? Is there a way to prevent that if you do want to, you know, go ahead and do this? You know, that's actually an excellent question. Uh, pollution is a big deal. And what a lot, what you'll see a lot in cities is people growing in containers, raised beds where they're bringing in soil. So some of these pocket parks, they'll grow things like trees and things in the ground or these, these community gardens. Uh, we have great examples in Chicago and a few other cities of this, New York in some places. But where runoff pollution is a real thing, so like water washing down the street, you know, into your garden. So which is why a lot of times they'll use uh, either collected rainwater or a city water source and grow a lot of the vegetables and a lot of the things you're actually going to consume up off the ground. They'll bring in soil. That kind of helps a little bit with creating a barrier between road pollution and ground pollution and uh, the, the vegetables themselves, the plants themselves. In general, there's debate on like bioaccumulation of pollutants in our food supply, in our vegetable food supply. It happens. It maybe doesn't happen as much as some people might think, but it does happen. It is certainly possible. And if you get lots of nitrates, lots of heavy metals and things that are running along the ground, especially things like lettuce and our other greens will pick that up. When we talk about fruit, the plant is well evolved to create something of a barrier between the environment and the fruit itself. So we do see some bioaccumulation of chemicals, some more than others, in fruits, but the plant has some natural barriers to that. But when we talk about foliage crops, uh, yeah, lettuce, spinach, chards, those kinds of things, cabbage, kale, uh, that that is a concern. 
there is a lot of policy that goes into having to make that, you know, the, every everything should inform everything else. And so I think as we build better policy, pollution is something we have to look at and the, the climate is something we have to look at, both the urban local climate and the climate on an overall scale. I think on the other side of that, gardens do a lot to remediate some of these problems. Now, we may not be able to necessarily eat the vegetables because of some pollution and stuff like that. But on a larger scale, if these vegetables bioaccumulate some of these things, they're trapping it out of the environment, right? There's been a lot of research on runoff water that runs through plant material or runs through grasses or something else and how much cleaner it is on the other side. And so water actually making it back down into the ground is much cleaner. There's lots of work that's been done in heating effects. And so there's something called the the urban heat island where uh, a large city produces its own microclimate that's much hotter because of all the concrete and metal and everything else. But things like rooftop gardens and pocket parks uh, help to mitigate that heat island effect. And so there are quite a few benefits to green space within the city. And I think it's something that our ancestors understood that we have forgotten along the way, that part of the quality of life is being plugged in with the planet. And we treat the garden today and we treat nature today as something that you almost have to go to experience, right? We, we talk about, oh, I'm going to go to a national park. I'm going to go to the mountains or the beach to experience nature. When the fact is, we can be experiencing nature in our own lives regardless of where we live. You could live in a high rise in New York City and have a container on your patio or house plants or something like that that bring a little bit of that connection back into our lives. And that's, you know, with my podcast, that's what I like to talk about is how do we connect back to our literal roots, our literal roots in nature as humans. And uh, it's a challenge, but I think it's somewhere that we're starting to move back towards. I hope we're starting to move back towards as a, as a global society. I hope. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> but I do have a funny question. So what do you do if you kill plants a lot? Can you get over it somehow? I mean, is there a way to make it better? And can you still somehow grow plants? <laughs> Absolutely. I think, uh, so th there's a theory out there that you have to spend 10,000 hours doing something to be an expert in something. Translate that to little tomato seedlings, okay? I have killed so many plants. So many plants. I kill plants all the time. I have three degrees in horticulture and I still kill plants all the time. It's one of those things that there's two ways to look at it for me. I think that we develop a strong emotional connection to our gardens, right? And so it's like you grow your one tomato and it's going along well and it gets a disease and it gets all these things and it's heartbreaking, right? Like it's heartbreaking. And so as someone that I love plants, I have gotten to a point where I'm not scared to take that tomato out, throw it away and plant another one, right? We have to, it's hard to do. It is so hard to do. But if we're growing for production, we have to be kind of pragmatic about it. That being said, I think trial and error is 100% okay. I think uh, just, just trying and just doing it over and over and over again. Yeah, you're going to kill a lot of plants. I've killed a lot of plants. We all do. There are some rare people that are like, you know, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it. They can grow anything, anywhere. 
they have like some special connection that the rest of us don't. I don't know how it works. But for the rest of us, I think we just learn through trial and error and we learn through repetition. So, yeah, it's it's brutal on the along the way. But uh, eventually, I think you figure it out. You figure out like what works in your your local area, what works with your soil, what works with the water that you have, what things can you grow and can't you grow? I think uh, a good plant selection is the number one thing you need to do to be successful in landscaping and gardening in general is pick varieties and pick plants that do well instead of fighting it. Okay, where I live, we have very like high pH soils. It's hot during the summer and cold during the winter. I love blueberries. I cannot grow blueberries here. It just, they won't do it. They don't like the soil. They don't like the water. They don't like the summers. They do not like Lubbock, Texas, USA. So I just had to come to terms that I will go to the grocery store and buy my blueberries. But I can grow jalapenos and other peppers very well here. And so it's all about, again, like like we've kind of been talking about, it's all about working with your environment and figuring out what's supposed to be there, what would grow there naturally, what's well adapted. That'll make you a lot happier for sure in your in your gardening pursuits. But it's also less of a strain on the environment. You're not introducing things that require more water than everything else, that require more nutrients than anything else. So when I pick plants, you know, I like my occasional tropical plant or or non-native plant just as much as anyone else. But if I'm gardening, I'm going to pick the varieties and the types of vegetables that are going to make me the most successful and be the, the easiest to grow with the least least input. Because all, you know, resources are important, but time is also important. <laughs> Time's a very important resource. Yes, and you still reap the benefits, particularly if you grow something like here it would be in our area, we tend to grow a lot of root vegetables. They just grow really well because our summers are very short and mm -hmm. we call them hot. But I know by Texas standard, it's a mild, you know, mild winter kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I do know if you do come to Ontario at any point, you can have wild blueberries and you'll be very disappointed with store-bought blueberries, unfortunately. <laughs> Oh, I know that experience well of like, uh, I did some research a few years ago with uh, strawberries, growing strawberries. And I I almost cannot eat a store-bought strawberry anymore. It does not taste like anything. Uh, I grow peaches. My family has a peach orchard. And like, I'll buy peaches from the store sometimes out of season. I'm like, I just, I can't, I cannot do it. I've kind of become like a fruit snob and I don't want to be that way, but here we are, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. I remember visiting some family in Florida and picking an orange out of the tree and eating that orange was just like, okay, we don't have this kind of orange in Canada. Like it doesn't taste the same as freshly picked. It's a whole other thing. That's And that's something I will say is that when we talk local foods, for me, that's the biggest benefit is that you actually get to figure out what fruit and vegetables are supposed to taste like. I am grateful and I am a proponent of our food system, of our global food system. I think it's something that with as many people as we have and our, our way of life, we have to have it. I'm not one to dunk on that ever. That being said, if you can pick or if you can eat a fruit or vegetable that came off the tree this morning, right, at a from a farmer's market, from a, a neighbor, from your own yard, it will change the way I think we view produce and, and view food. When people say they don't like X fruit, I'm like, okay, that's fine. You don't, you don't have to, right? You don't have to like it. But have you tried a fresh one? 
And I think that's where the hangup is. So we had, um, I, I mentioned we have a small, a small peach orchard my family does, and it's about five acres, which when I'm pruning, it does not feel like a small peach orchard. But we had a reporter come from the news one day, the local news, to talk about the orchard and our season. And the camera guy that came with her swore up and down that he would not eat peaches. He was like, I don't like peaches. They're not good. I was like, have you ever had a fresh peach? He's like, no, I don't like peaches. I'm like, I, I will keep your camera. I'm not letting you leave here without trying peach. And now he's like, oh, I like peaches. I'm like, come on, man. Like you, you know. So I think it's it's one of those things that local foods can do so much for our health in general just because it introduces us to what food is supposed to taste like. Now, I can't grow oranges where I live. So if I want an orange, I will go to the grocery store and buy an orange. But I could grow and freeze or or preserve things like jalapenos or uh, peppers that are far better than anything I buy in the grocery store. So it's all about, I think, living and eating locally where and when you can and as much as you can. And then not feeling guilty about going and buying some of those things from the store that you can't get locally. Uh, that's one of the biggest benefits of the way our society is built is like, we don't, you can live locally. I think you should, but you don't have to, like you don't necessarily have to, at least I hate making blanket statements like that because there are people that struggle with food security and there are people that may have to live on a, on a more subsistence farm kind of lifestyle. And that's fine too. But in our Western culture, you know, we have this society where you can go and get pretty much whatever you want. And there's benefits to that. There's drawbacks, but there's certain benefits to that. So it's so complicated and it's so complex. And I, I think that it's easy as a, as a Westerner, as an American to get, you know, very insulated in the way I look at some of this. And so preparing for this a little bit was interesting for me going back and reading. It's stuff I've studied in the past, but probably not for years. And it was just interesting reading the evolution of the garden worldwide and, and how that's worked and how we've gotten to where we are in different places in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about like the design and architecture, but did you have other insights you want to give in that topic? Um, in design and architecture? Yeah. So, um, gosh, I think that there's no right or wrong way to design a landscape or a garden design. There's no right or wrong way. Ultimately, especially the home landscape, improve your quality of life. That's the way I've always looked at it, that it should be something that you enjoy and that isn't a chore. There is pressure a lot of times, whether from homeowners associations, which are the the craziest thing to me. HOAs blow my mind. I do not understand the concept um, where it's like you have to plant this one kind of tree in your yard and we'll fine you if you don't. It's insane to me. So any HOA people out there, I'm not listening. I'm not sorry. I'm not. <laughs> but I think that there's no wrong way to do it. I think we should design the landscape in a way that brings us the most enjoyment and the most um, peace of mind and the best experience in our home because it should make your home better. It should be something that you can use. It can be should be something that you enjoy. If you're in a situation where you can't do a home garden, I think there are that's why we should be designing good parks and different styles of parks and things like that that people can go enjoy. I will say, though, that I'm a big proponent, again, of using plants that are well adapted. I'm not so much a nativist. There's a lot of nativists out there, and that's okay, too. But it's like if it didn't grow here historically, you should not grow it here. I understand that to a certain extent, but I think that we can find tons of well-adapted plants from similar climates all over the world. And as long as they don't, again, use an inordinate amount of time or resources or they're not invasive, why not? 
you know, find something that works great. Uh, again, if I were to only use native plants here in Lubbock, Texas, I would only have grass in my landscape. Maybe a mesquite tree. Maybe. You know, and that even that depends on who you ask. And so uh, I think that when we design gardens and when we designed our landscapes, it should be, again, something we enjoy. There's um, the American Society of Landscape Architecture does this big survey every year on all of their client members and their clients and looking at what people want in the landscape. And so the past few years, the top several things have been native and well-adapted plants, lower maintenance plants, because again, everyone's busy, but then up there pretty high on the list is vegetables. It's uh, fruit trees. It's uh, in terms of materials in the landscape. When we look at design styles, it's again, things that are well-adapted, but there is a shift towards people wanting to spend more time outdoors in the landscape to make it like an outdoor living room, an extension of the home. It's funny because actually in the top 10, there's things like charging stations and Wi-Fi in the garden. That's something that lots of people want. I have mixed feelings. Uh, if it gets someone outside to be able to plug their phone in and you get to see the sun and you don't just sit in your living room all day, I'm all for it. Listen, I, I listen to music. I'm listening to podcasts on my phone all the time. So if I have Wi-Fi in the garden, that makes me pretty happy. I don't know that I, in my own home landscape, would put a charging station in the middle of my landscape. But I understand why people want that. We're so connected to technology. And if that's what it takes to get people outside, I am all for it. Let's put in Wi-Fi relays and, and charging stations in our landscape. Whatever. I, that's always That was funny to me when the first time I saw that. I was like, well... That's not really like a plant, but okay, whatever, you know, whatever. People like what they like and that's okay. <laughs> well, it's also maybe, you know, a, you can have your home office outside for part of the year, you know, and that's, that's actually not a terrible idea. I mean, get some fresh air while you have to work, maybe. That actually sounds great. And especially with all the quarantine stuff when we're stuck at home all over the world, if you can go work on your back patio and still have connectivity, great, you know. You can hear birds and feel the fresh air, and yeah, that, I'm, all, I'm all for that. Now I'm kind of thinking of how, how do I get myself a office in my backyard? I've been, you know, I have not been as quarantined as some because I spend a lot of my time working alone in a greenhouse, so I can come up here and just, you know, be alone. But uh, no, that's a really good point, that the more we work from home, the more we should not be stuck 100% in our homes. <laughs> and if, yeah, if, if Wi-Fi can accomplish that, then great. Absolutely. I mean, quarantine forced us to get a hammock strung between some trees and put a tire for the kids, you know, a swing tire, which mm -hmm. I don't think we would have considered before because they were always very active in doing other things. So that is an excellent point, too. And I think that that's something that's worth mentioning. How many people are gardening in 2020 who have taken up gardening? If you go to like the garden center, they're sold out all of the time. It's a madhouse. <laughs> like when quarantine first started, it was so what for us, it was March, March ish, you know, uh, it was starting to warm up a little bit here in, in Texas a little. Uh, I say that that's relative, right? Like our, our low temperatures are the lowest we'll get here where I live is about five degrees Fahrenheit, which is cold. But it's not that cold. And so it was starting to warm up in March. And I was like, OK, I'm going to go buy some vegetable plants. And I got to the home improvement store and I was like, nope, there are a thousand people here. I'm this is like coronavirus central. I'm going home. But 
the number of people who are interested in growing their own food and in having useful outdoor space uh, in the past six months has gone through the roof. I'm interested to see some of the data on this to see like what percentage of people that were non-gardeners before 2020 are gardening now. So I think we realized kind of what, what we've been talking about just now is that, oh, if I'm going to be home all the time, I want my, my yard to look nice. You know, I want my backyard to be something I enjoy. Absolutely. Interesting that it took a global pandemic for that, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. Cause wood prices went up and plants were sold out everywhere. I mean, our snow lasts till about, you know, mid April. Oh, so wow. it took us a while to get on the bandwagon, but. <laughs> and that's, that, that is interesting to think about that, you know, in, in Texas we're hot and that's not the same as everywhere. <laughs> Again, I forget. We, I think I forget what lot that there's like people that live in different places and their climate's not the same as mine. Uh, I have to remind myself of that pretty regularly. It's no in April. Well, all right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's light. I mean, it's mostly gone. There's like, sure. you know, like this much. It's not that bad. <laughs> I've been looking at these sort of underground greenhouses mm -hmm. for people who live in cold climates. And it sounds really interesting where, from my understanding, you have sort of this cold ditch so that the cold air stays there and then you lift all your plants and you have glass so that the sun shines through but they say you can only really grow things like lettuce and kale and you know nothing crazy but have you ever looked into sort of these cold climate types greenhouses yeah and that's that's a really good point too i think that's an interesting style of greenhouse the one you're talking about it's almost like a dugout greenhouse where you again have a, a ditch where all the cold air sinks and then you raise the temperature everywhere else through the use of glass and use of other things. Um, I think in a passively heated greenhouse, which is kind of what you're talking about, yeah, you're probably mostly limited to, again, still root vegetables and leafy greens and things like that, but you could probably grow them all year without any trouble. If you add any kind of active heating at all, you could probably grow anything you wanted because you really just have to keep it from freezing. So that is, again, something that we're really going into the future, climate controlled growing is something that's becoming a big deal, even in the, at the home setting, uh, where people build little, what we called high tunnels or low tunnels, which is essentially just a hoop house, a hooped Quonset style house covered in plastic, passively heated. Uh, but you can extend your growing season a lot of times, four to six weeks in each, each direction, which is a big deal. An extra two months of food production is a lot. <laughs> we are not seeing necessarily a whole lot of like traditional glass houses going up anymore glass greenhouses going up anymore just because it's they're expensive and there's maintenance stuff that that goes with that uh, here at work i have about twenty thousand square feet or about half an acre not quite half an acre of glass greenhouse that i manage and i love a glass greenhouse i think it's great but we get hail and things here and that tends to be a challenge we do see more and more of these little climate controlled structures though whether it's people buying little greenhouse kits to put in their backyard or building these uh quonset style structures or even lean-to greenhouses where you use maybe a southern exposure on your home and use the the wall to help insulate and trap heat and then build sort of literally a lean-to style greenhouse that you plant in. I, I think that, again, the biggest benefit there is certainly extending your growing season in both directions. You plant earlier and you terminate later. And so uh, especially if you're doing things like preservation, you can start that earlier and you can go a little bit like longer into the fall. I think there's a lot of potential with that. Yeah. I think that the studies are 
going more and more into looking at just the variety of growing you can do, right? It seems as though things that I've read, like you were saying, the city landscapes where you're adding greenery or these little community gardens or cold landscape kind of gardens. For sure. And and then even moving more into hydroponics and more technology-assisted style, which hydroponics is not new either. Uh, there's evidence from uh, Mayan and Aztec civilizations in Mexico or in, in Central America where they would use these raft-style hydroponic gardens where they would build a big raft, a wooden raft, and then plant their plants into that. So the roots grew down through it and hung in the water, pulled up nutrients there. And then if they were attacked, they could cut the ropes on that raft and push their food supply out into the lake. So they used it as a way of, one, growing in the water so they didn't have to divert water or move water. But it was also a protection of their crops because in especially older style warfare, that was the first thing that was attacked was the food supply. And so it was a, an, an ingenious way of protecting their food supplies. Really cool. And so that's not new, but again, it's coming back into the, not necessarily rafts and, you know, being attacked, but, but, but hydroponics is becoming a big thing and, and growing plants in places where you would not think of it, like high-rise buildings or old shopping malls or uh, warehouses and places where we can use lights and other kinds of technology to increase our food supply without increasing our footprint so to speak. I feel like now I want to see rafts on all the Great Lakes, you know? <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> That'd be really awesome. Giant, giant food rafts. It would work. I'm up for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. It would work. Except for when it freezes, then it's not so great. <laughs> well, there's that. There is that. It may be easier in Mexico than it is in, in uh, uh, southern Canada, northern U.S. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about gardens. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. That was a great way to learn about the history of gardens. Also, you can find me on the website, historya.com, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at historya. I love reading your messages, so thank you. Also, if you have time to rate this podcast on your podcasting platform of choice, that'd be fantastic. Apparently, it helps people find me. And I also want to thank my husband, Jamie, our brood of kids, our family, our friends, and the teachers that have been here along the way. Without you, I would not be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.